Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details decides, you know, we don't know exactly when he's going to make a decision. I want to bring in Ashley Banfield. Her show starts up uh, soon here. I'm curious, Ashley, what you think. I mean, I got the sense he really doesn't like the media, doesn't like cameras, the judge, but how, how do you think this is going to go? I also have a dog in the fight. Uh, I think it's obvious, but I'll, I'm going to reiterate what you said. The, the rampant speculation is a real problem when people don't get to see for themselves what the process is and instead has to relay or rely on a filter, any filter, social media or, you know, cable or wherever they can find uh, their, you know, reporting on a story. And the problem is, is that distrust of our institutions is a big problem right now in this country. And so unless you get to see for yourself what the institutions are actually doing, rather than hope you're getting the real McCoy from all the different mouthpieces, um, that's where I stand. Uh, I'm sick and tired of hearing about gag orders and no cameras and secrecy in our jurisprudence. That's not what this country was built on. I understand the other side. Don't get me wrong. I just think this side is more important. Yeah, I agree with you. And look, even the families, several of the families have said the whole process has been too secretive, even for them. So I think that says a lot. So we'll see how the judge uh, rules. Thank you, Ashley. Uh, Happy Friday night. Uh, Banfield starts right now. We made it, everybody. Thank you so much for being here on a Friday night. And do I ever have a treat for you? It is Sexy Friday. It is really sexy Friday night uh, because the story I'm going to start the show with is really, really sexy. So you probably should have adults only in the room for this one. Uh, some pictures I'm going to show you are pretty sexy. Lots of sexy things they're wearing and some sexy themes. And this isn't even the beginning of the sexy. Let me trust. Let me tell you. Trust me when I say the story about that woman, Tatiana Remley, and her husband, Mark Remley, uh, it started as like a murder for hire allegation. She got busted in a sting and the cops say she was trying to have him killed for $2 million. That's an expensive hitman. And then all of a sudden, pow, everything started coming out about their lives and his $26 million inheritance and their three Rolls Royces and Ferrari and black pickup trucks and mansions in Hawaii and and then this stuff, the parties that were $30,000 a night. And tonight... It's sexy time because it turns out this couple was part of a, an exclusive sex club in L.A. Um, that ended up getting a lot of coverage when a documentary came out about it. And now we've discovered they're in the documentary. So there's that. And then after that, there's even more bizarre stuff that's come out about Tatiana, like court documents that say she was imprisoned as a kid by her parents for a decade and sexually molested by her brother and living off the grid. And I mean, there is some bonkers stuff going on in this case. So I'm going to bring you all that in a moment. Then also, you know, this whole Ruby Frankie business that the YouTuber, uh, she's all about parenting tips and then gets arrested. What do you know for not parenting properly and for abusing her children instead? Those are the allegations against her. She's put in the clink uh, with her podcasting partner. And now the cellmate speaks. And it turns out the cellmate 
was mate of both of them at different times and so has a story to tell about Ruby and a story to tell about the partner and we're trying to figure out what the relationship is now between Ruby and the partner because what the cellmate is saying well it's odd um I'll leave it at that for now. I'm going to explain it in more detail in just a moment. And then, uh, you know, Brian Etten just touched upon it, and it is the story in Idaho and how that story endears. I mean, it is still hanging um, and haunting, the, not just the community around the University of Idaho, but, you know, those who have an invested interest in what's going to happen regarding justice for these four innocent kids who were murdered in that house. And meanwhile, that house right there, you know, the sunshine's lovely when it hits those boarded-up windows, but inside it is pitch black and very sad. And that house still stands. And it is a tragic monument as kids come back to school and, and as new kids come to that school. We're going to talk about um, what Brian Enton has learned. He's going to have an exclusive report a little later on in the program about the house that stands and for how long. Let's start with this wild new reporting out of the New York Post on Tatiana Remley and Mark Remley. It's really kind of like eyes wide shut stuff that we're starting to hear about these two. We already knew that it was pretty wild. We already knew that, you know, she'd lead him around parties with a belt around his necks and that, that they had a lot of sexy time with friends. But we did not know about the documentary that they apparently were all too happy to appear in. Apparently, they were very robust members of a kinky sex club in L.A. called Sanctum. I remember watching the documentary about it and thinking it was, like, really out there, right? Like, eyes wide shut, Stanley Kubrick, you know, Nicole Kidman, Tom Cruise stuff. Masks and bustiers with no fronts and no, you knows. They actually were, like, featured really heavily in this documentary, um, and, you know, who would know that just a couple years later she'd be thrown in uh, jail and charged with trying to have her sexy husband murdered by a hitman for $2 million. The whole thing was just so odd. I, let me just show you the trailer, just so you can know now. I mean, you can already tell from these pictures they're pretty wild people. But let me show you the trailer for the Showtime documentary about this uh, Sanctum Sex Club. Uh, so you'll get, a, uh, get your whistle wetted. Have a look. Sanctum is a secretive society where members explore their wildest fantasies. Oh. Welcome to my world. You're going to see things that you've never seen before. Sex is the center of our universe. For the very wealthy, I've created my own land. Please enjoy. Welcome to the club, man. Well, okay. Uh, everybody's got a kink, I guess. All right. The weirdest part of this, we might not, never have known that Mark and Tatiana were part of that club, um, you know, years later when they're dealing with, you know, this horrible case. But they had pseudonyms. Um, he called himself Vladimir, and she called herself Ilyana. Uh, weirdly, there's more to that I'm going to tell you about in a moment, too, because there's allegations now that uh, Tatiana slash Ilyana had a brother named Vladimir. So that's really gross, too, because now her husband's using Vladimir as his um, sex name. And we're learning through court documents that uh, she has said, and so her parents have said, and her ex-husband has said that she was molested 
by this brother as a kid. And then her husband chose Vladimir as the name that they would use in the sex club. Have a look at this next clip. Dame has created something here, which is, is an opportunity for people to open their minds. I'm all about pushing limits, and we're going to follow Sanctum, and we're going to go to where it goes and just pursue it and enjoy it and enjoy life and pursue ourselves and our love and our romance and our sexuality. So it turns out there was a whole lot of sexuality because the reports are that they had loads of sort of sex fun with other people, um, other men, other women. And apparently the other women uh, was a big thing for Tatiana. And I think the example of that is in this next clip from that from that documentary, Sanctum. Uh, they're like, I don't know, bunnies or something of that sort. Take a look. The bunnies were beautiful. They're sensuous. There's something enticing about their their energy. It draws me to them. I cannot stop myself. Like all the taboos of this world and everything just dissolves in their energy. Sex is probably the biggest part of our life. Sex is the center of our universe. And everything we derive around it revolves around it. Correct. And in the beginning of our relationship, we weren't into this uh, lifestyle. But as time grew on and our sexuality grew together, we opened up to this type of experience. And Sanctum made it all that much of me more amazing. I'll bet they wish they hadn't done that now, given the fact that he's kind of vamoose. Uh, nobody knows where he is now. And she's in jail accused of lots of gun charges. Um, There's a whole story there, too. I would need four hours to give you the whole background. But their marriage was like a powder keg. Uh, She had filed for divorce three times from him. And this last one ended in like the mansion burning down and she got arrested with guns. And then month after that, she gets arrested again with guns. But this time it's a sting in a Starbucks where they say she was hiring a hitman. But the hitman was an undercover. One of the allegations in the divorce papers, though, is very disturbing. As Look, a lot of this is disturbing. But one of the allegations is that uh, she says that her husband sent some friends of his uh, into her home and busted down her bedroom door and, and raped her while he stood by, watched, and laughed. Those are her allegations. But then she goes further, and this is where it goes even more bonkers, Uh, She says those same friends then went outside and vandalized a big horse statue. Uh, Like there's like a quarter million dollars in damage. Apparently, she alleges was done Um, and then cuts off the head of the horse statue. And where do you think they put the head? If you're a movie buff, then you'll know in her bed. And there's the video to prove it. A horse's head in her bed and the video uh, as part of the um, allegations and the filings. So uh, I want to bring in somebody who, well, first, there's a lot to unpack, right? Eric Martinovich is a former business partner and um, the man that the Remleys actually hired to do a big horse show, like a Cirque du Soleil of horses that didn't go so well. Uh, Eric, the last time I talked to you, we didn't know all this other stuff. Like a lot of this other stuff has sort of just come cascading and it's more bizarre than the last stuff. I wanted to get your read, your first reaction, first of all, to this business of the, 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 the club, the sex club they were part of, and then the big documentary they did. But then also like the horse's head and the allegations of the gang rape. 
Um, the sex club thing doesn't really surprise me. That's totally up alley. Uh, I'm sure he just followed her along and said, yeah, sure. Whatever you want, babe. Yeah, that'll be fun. Um, I don't, I don't think that it was his idea. I think he, he probably had fun with it, but I, it definitely isn't something he would be able to do on his own. That's just not his, not his MO. Uh, the, the horse head thing. I, I mean, obviously there was a horse head in the room cause, uh, there's video of it, but that whole scenario, I'm, I would be shocked if it wasn't her whole idea, her thing. She decided to do it. And then now is just trying to come up with reasons that she shouldn't be thrown in jail. But I, I'm sure that was all her. She was the ringleader and all of that kind of stuff. So do you not believe the filing where she alleges that Mark had his friends gang rape her while he watched and laughed? Um, I, I believe it may have happened, but I think that she's the one who orchestrated it, not him. I That was totally her MO. She, would, she was always the one trying to get people to come do things with her. That was... That was her thing. Mark, I can't imagine Mark, <laughs> I'd be surprised if he has that many friends, but I can't imagine Mark actually orchestrating that on his own. That's that was that's right up her alley and definitely not something that I could see him doing. Um, but I'm sure that I mean, she was the it orchestrator. Does sound, yeah, it does seem like they certainly had a, a, a lot of kinks, right? But there, you have your own story about what you think they were sort of crafting to involve you. And tell me about that. What what was it that happened? Um, so in uh, 17, I got a phone call from Mark, and he was. this was after our business deal, deals had failed miserably, and I didn't want anything to do with him. And he was trying to get me to come down to San Diego and hang out and it never, I couldn't figure out what he wanted. I kept trying to figure out if it was business or whatever. And he kept, he was just always really vague about it. And uh, eventually I find, I just got sick of dealing with him and, and stopped returning his phone calls. But a month later, maybe two months later, a mutual friend of ours was at my place and we were talking about it. And I just brought it up as a weird thing that why was Mark bothering me? And he immediately knew the answer. And he said, oh, Tatiana wants to sleep with you while he watches. So apparently they were trying to get me to come down there and have sex with Tatiana while Mark watched for whatever whatever reason. Well, it's, it's falling into place given the you know the yeah. confessions they made on tape for the Showtime uh, documentary for the Sanctum Club. Yeah. Um, by the way, that Sanctum Club is no more. The owner sold it right before COVID, and uh, he's moved on to do some some other ventures. But j- talk to me a little bit about the the mysterious names they they chose as aliases uh, while members of that sex club and as uh, participants in the documentary. He called himself Vladimir. She called herself uh, Il- Ilana. Um, but Vladimir is the name of her brother whom she alleges sexually molested her. And her mother even says sexually molested her as yeah. a kid. It's odd. Yeah, that's really odd. There's definitely, there's something wrong with her. That's, I mean, that's a really weird thing to want him. I, a hundred percent know he didn't pick the name. That was her idea. Um, he, he's not even that creative to come up with that name. So I, I'm sure she picked it and, mm-hmm. Why she would pick that name if that's who molested her, her brother, like that, even if he didn't molest her, just her brother's name, that's really bizarre. She's a, what do you make of the whole Russian part of it all? I mean, um, 
You know, I was looking up earlier. Uh, where I thought I thought she came from Russia. She didn't. She she comes from the U.S. She grew up in like Bend, Oregon. Doesn't get more you know American than that, or not Russian. Um, and her parents' names were like Vera and Brian. So yeah, what do you make I, of the the I, whole I, Russian fixation? I, I think it was just part of her mo. That was her. She had a, a character that she played all the time, um, and it was this Russian Barbie doll princess equestrian. And I don't think any of it was true. It was all something she made up. I, I'm pretty sure her real name is Tanya. I don't think it's actually Tatiana. Um, she, it's all, it's all this persona that she's made up, and maybe it's a, you know, came from the the childhood trauma, and she needed a character that she could become that wasn't tortured. I don't know, but it, it there's none of it's real. It's all her this character that she plays. Eric, did she ever talk about her um, former husband? Because she was married to another super wealthy guy. I mean, I already mentioned that Mark inherited $26 million. <laughs> Great work if you can get it. But there was another husband named Ken Wolcott, who she was only married to for 11 months. He's a big tech billionaire uh, or tech entrepreneur and you know professional sports team owner. Uh, plenty of money. <clears throat> Didn't go so well, and it was a pitched custody battle. Did you know anything about that? Um, only that she, so she had a billboard for Valatar, the show, made with her standing there looking as sexy as she could, holding a pole, kind of looked like an ad for a strip club. Uh, and she put it on I-5 where he had to drive every day so that he would have to see it. So she, she definitely had a little vendetta going. Uh, other than that, she didn't really talk about it much. She pretty much just, she obviously didn't like him and she wanted to, show him how wonderful she was doing without him. That, that was about all I got out of it. I cannot believe like, the The hits keep coming. I mean, holy Dinah. Yeah. I can't thank you enough. Eric Martanovich, you've got so many stories. you got to come back. Thank you for being here tonight. Anytime. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Have a, have a great weekend. Okay, still to come. Some really jaw-dropping details. Um, and I always love a cellmate that speaks. And this is the cellmate of Ruby Frankie, that parenting expert, the one who uh, is facing six counts of parenting really badly to the point of being criminal. But then there's also like not only what the cellmate is saying about Ruby Frankie, but also what the cellmate is saying about her co-defendant. Sounds more like codependent and maybe something extra. So the cellmate and Ruby's sister spilling tea. Next. I love me a good cellmate story. (laughs) I've never had a cellmate myself. (laughs) But if I did, I wouldn't tell them nothing. Because cellmates talk. Sometimes they're called jailhouse snitches. Uh, Sometimes they're just called blabbering cellmates. But whatever it is, do not expect that anything you say in the slammer is going to be kept secret. Because Ruby Frankie had a cellmate and her podcast partner, co-defendant, Jody Hildebrandt, had the same cellmate and not at the same time. You follow me? Like it's getting better and better, right? Turns out that 
Um, when Deborah Monson was checked into the Purgatory Correctional Facility in Utah, uh, she was rooming with Jody overnight. And then she was moved. Deborah was moved and ended up rooming instead with Ruby for like three days. And the characterizations that Deborah gives about Ruby are fascinating. Like it's given me a whole new perspective on what this podcasting business relationship was. Maybe it was more. The way Deborah puts it, she told the insider that Frankie seemed fixated on Jody Hildebrand, complained that they were being held separately, asked a lot of questions about what Jody said when Deborah was rooming with Jody. And then Deborah Monson described um, Ruby, Frankie, as almost childlike and smitten with Hildebrand. And it kind of lines up with what Ruby Frankie's sister is now saying. Uh, her name is Julie Griffith Deru. Deru, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, she released a video about the current investigation. Her family's been none too supportive of her, right? She's a YouTuber with parenting tips who got arrested for child abuse. What I mean, her own kids are uh, saying the arrest was about time, and her own family is saying the arrest is about time. Anyway, Julie Griffith-Diru, who is Ruby Frank's sister, releases this new video detailing how Ruby uh, changed after teaming up with this Jody Hildebrand. Here's how she put it. We all saw it. We all felt weird about this Jody lady. We didn't, we weren't comfortable with it. We didn't like it. We didn't like the teachings Ruby was bringing to the family functions. And we were this close to telling her, if you come to our family events anymore, we do not want to hear what you were learning through connections because we don't like it. We never did say that to her, but we thought it. Um, anyway, so three years ago, Ruby and I hung out bottling tomatoes. And then a few weeks later, crap hit the fan and she left the family and she didn't even call me to say hey you know Julie you're doing this and this I don't like it you're living your life in distortion so I'm gonna have to take some time away from you no literally nothing she did call my mom and yelled at my mom on the phone for 45 minutes and accused her of things that were not true it was almost as if Ruby had been making up memories from her childhood she was trying to grab at anything she could and she would exaggerate on everything. So she started all of her lies back then, lying to everyone in her life, getting rid of all of her friends and family, and I literally had no contact with her. She wouldn't respond to any texts or emails over the uh, time that I tried reaching out to her, never got a response from her. Holy cow. That's Julie Griffith-Steru. That's uh, Ruby Frankie's sister. I want to bring in uh, somebody who knows a lot about this case. Uh, Lauren Mathias was a reporter in southern Utah for two years. Uh, she knows a lot of the people in the area very well. She hosts the very popular Hidden True Crime podcast. Lauren, I was reading that Jody Hildebrandt, Ruby Frankie's partner, had a $3 million house. That that's where those kids escaped from was this $3 million house. What do you know about Jody? Yes, uh, I know a lot about Jody. She was well received in the area. She had a booming therapy business and exactly a $3 million home in a very high end neighborhood. Uh, you know, one interesting thing about the house is that it had this downstairs room, which most of the houses in this area, I'll say they're, they're built by the same builder and they do not have basements or downstairs rooms. I think that's very interesting. But she was well received in the area. She went to church. 
she had friends and she clearly uh, had a booming therapy business. My husband even ran into her at, at trainings. She was at the chamber meetings. She was at the women's St. George business meetings. She was, she was active in this community in Southern Utah. I'm trying to figure it all out, though. It's so bizarre, given that they're podcast partners, but they live like four to five hours drive apart. And the weirdness is that the children are escaping. Well, the one kid is escaping out the window of Jody's $3 million house, but they're both arrested at Ruby's house. So Jody's house is in uh, Cayenta, Utah, if I pronounce that correctly, and Ruby's house is in Springville, Utah, and they're so far apart. Why are the kids alone, you know, four and a half hours away? I'm so glad you brought this up, Ashley, because I think it's something that people aren't discussing. People forget how big of a state Utah is. So they're not realizing. And it was in Ivan's Utah. The, the subdivision or the neighborhood is Cayenta. But they, were, they, they escaped the home in Ivan's Utah in the Cayenta area. And what people aren't realizing is how far away Springville is from Ivan's Utah and nobody's understanding that it literally means that these kids were abandoned at this house because Springville Utah is northern Utah we're talking four hours north at least over 300 miles north is where Ruby lived where both Jody and Ruby were arrested together at Ruby's house Jody's house is is four hours south in southern Utah among the Red Rocks and that's where the children escaped. I've also heard that the children didn't even know that they were alone, you know, but they were abandoned. And I think that's something we're not talking about enough. These children were alone. It's so bizarre. It's, I mean, clearly we're only at the tip of the iceberg on the story. Lauren Mathias, thank you for this. Thanks for being with me on Friday night. Have a good weekend. Thanks, Ashley. Uh, Lauren Mathias's podcast is terrific. If you haven't seen it, you should. If you haven't heard it, you should. Hidden True Crime podcast. Okay. In two months, the black fog of an ominous anniversary is about to envelop the University of Idaho, the campus there, on November 13th. That's when Brian Koberger is alleged to have made his way through the sliding glass doors at the back of 1122 King Road, only to murder four innocent students in their beds. That home sits silently boarded up like an abandoned scar looming above campus, a two-story nightmare that never ends. But will it still be standing on November 13th this year? Brian Enton's exclusive report is next. That and a mom and her children vanished over a week ago without a trace. She is not using her bank accounts. She is not using her cell phone. But these kids are little. So where exactly are they? Because right now, everybody connected to them is very, very worried. We're going to touch on that search next. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. 
We've got some breaking news we want to bring your way, and I hate bringing this kind of news. Um, a mom and three kids have seemingly vanished uh, in the Franklin County area of Virginia. I've got these pictures that I can show you. They're just little, like they're really little kids. Um, over there on the right, that's Lauren Cook. Uh, she's about 5'1", with long brown hair, brown eyes. The kids are 7-year-old Benjamin Cook, 5-year-old Hannah, and 2-year-old Elijah. And they're, they all have the last name Cook. I mean, just cute, cute little monkeys. Look at them. Uh, it's, a, it's a strange story. They haven't been seen in about 10 days. The Franklin County Sheriff's Office is really worried about them. They were supposed to have shown up at a family member's house and didn't. No credit card use, no bank accounts access, no cell phone use. Uh, they think that she might be traveling in a blue 2013 Chrysler van with Virginia tags. Uh, husband apparently is quite worried about them uh, being missing. If you may have seen this family, these three kids and this mom, the Cook family, Hannah and um, Benjamin and Elijah and their mom, Lauren, if you think you might have seen them, the Franklin County Sheriff really, really wants to hear from you. Take a screenshot of our screen, 540-483-3000. We're going to continue to follow that, too, just to see what we can uh, come up with on that story. You know, it has been, it's hard to believe this, 307 days. And that was um, when the Idaho student murders happened. But this time last year, 1122 King Road was the house to be on a Friday night. All the inn kids were there wild parties, Friday night fun. Since November 13th, however, that house has stood silent. The halls, the rooms inside are pitch black, windows boarded up, most of the contents long since removed. But the house is still standing, even though the university has tried everything to bring it down. And can you blame them? It is a monument to a nightmare. The demolition plans have been delayed multiple times. First one was planned really for the end of last semester, and then it got pushed to over the summer, and then it got pushed to this October. Families say it should stay up as evidence until after Koberger's trial. And who knows when that trial is going to be now that he's invoked his right to the, uh, or waived his right to the speedy trial. But what do all the kids say? You know, the returning students who see it again still standing there. Or how about the freshmen? who are coming in and seeing it for the first time. News Nation senior national correspondent Brian Enton visited the house and spoke with some of the kids at the school. Ashley, we're outside the house where the murders happened, 1122 King Road. You can see uh, it's still boarded up. They've got a fence around the house. There's still a security guard out here around the clock keeping an eye on things. We're told that there are still gawkers that come by and people that want to take pictures and all sorts of things like that. So uh, the security really keeps a close eye on what's happening here. Uh, it won't be torn down in the imminent future. You remember initially the University of Idaho, which owns the property now, wanted to tear the house down. Uh, the families were very upset about that. They want the house to stay uh, for the trial in case the jury wants to tour the house, if the, in case there's a jury view. Um, and now the, uh, the university has put off tearing down the house until at least December. Uh, that's when they're going to revisit that issue again. It's an interesting vibe out here, um, Ashley, on campus and around the house. The house is right next to the campus. Uh, a lot of new faces, a lot of freshmen uh, who are on campus for the first time. Some people we've talked to aren't even familiar with the murders. Other people uh, saying, that, you know, they've been at school here for a couple of years and are just sort of trying to put this behind them right now. Uh, and it's difficult with the house still being here. A lot of people have to walk by it uh, every single day. But one thing we've heard over and over again, Ashley, 
um, is that there's this frustration that the trial is now going to be delayed uh, since Brian Koberger waived his speedy trial. It could be a year. It could be two years from now. There's this sense from the students and from the community that they wanted the trial to happen quickly. They wanted to put this behind them so that they could move forward uh, as a college. Uh, We talked to several students on campus. Listen to what they said. I haven't heard about it much, only recently because apparently the trial is coming up, but that's about it. They delayed the trial now. Oh. Uh, what do you think about that? I mean, do you think it would have been better for people to, to have the trial sooner so people could sort of move on? I definitely think closure is something people need. Kind of just give everyone a reset and like a fresh plate to start off of, kind of delaying it. I feel like just just longs the whole situation even more and doesn't do any good. Whatever happens with the trial needs to stay away from Moscow. We need to keep moving on as a school and keep getting better and healing. So would you prefer to see it moved out of out of Moscow? I would, yes. I think a lot of students would. So um, it, we're doing good here and a lot better than what we were last year. It needs to stay that way. So in terms of when the trial will be, of course, we, we just don't know. I mean, it could be next year. It could be the year after that. There's really no telling, which, again, sort of adds to the uneasiness in this community, not knowing how long uh, this is going to be going on for here, how long the house will be standing. Uh, again, no plans to tear down the house at this very moment, uh, but the university says they'll revisit uh, that decision again in December. Ashley? All right, Brian Enton, thank you for that. Um, Listen, I've seen trials that have taken 10 years. So when it's quadruple murder, better do it right. Still to come, what a roller coaster week it has been um, in the business of manhunting. I say that because we all watched as Danilo Cavalcante uh, was, you know, cuffed without a shot fired, thrown in the back, uh, back in the slammer. And then Yoda became a newly minted hero, canine hero. We do love a good manhunt, don't we? especially when the good guys win. But why is it we are so transfixed by the manhunt? What was it about Cavalcante? And what about Brian Laundrie and Eric Rudolph? What is it about these guys that keeps us on the edge of our seats? I have that answer. Stay there. We're coming right back. Uh, fun fact for you on this Friday night. You know the place where Danilo Cavalcante was taken um, after they caught him finally? Uh, it's the SCI Phoenix, the State Correctional Institution Phoenix in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania. Same institution where Bill Cosby stayed for three years. Did not know that till today. Um, but it got me thinking about what is it about a manhunt that we are just so transfixed by? Is it the danger of the guy that's out there, or is it just the fact that sometimes we just really want them to be caught? In early June of 2021, Brian Laundrie and Gabby Petito were a young couple setting out on a cross-country road trip. And Gabby's digital diary, her photos and her videos and her real-time reports from wherever they happen to be, Well, that was her way of sharing that magical time with the world. But in August, all of that ended. Gabby's final Instagram post was the very same day that she last spoke with her mother, August 25th. And on September 1st, Brian returned to the home of his parents in Northport, Florida. But he was all by himself in the camper van that the couple had been driving together to Colorado and Utah and Wyoming. All right. And then, back up in Utah, police released body cam video 
video that showed the idyllic road trip those two had been on. Well, it was shown in a completely different light. I don't know, we'd have been fighting all morning, and, and he would have let me in the car before. And then Why wouldn't he let you in the car? Because <laughs> he, he, he told me I need to calm down. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm perfectly calm, calm all the time. And... One day after that video was broadcast everywhere, a bombshell from Laundry's parents. Now Brian was missing too. I would tell my brother to just come forward and get us out of this horrible mess. I hope my brother is alive because I want answers just as much as everybody else. Investigators and journalists and true crime fans on the internet all weighed in with mock-ups of Brian with more hair, with less hair, with different hair, with a bushy beard, and with no beard at all. But none of it panned out. Brian Laundrie was still on the run. But on October 20th, Laundrie's remains were finally found in Florida, in that park abutting the vast nature preserve that had been searched time and time again. The area had recently flooded, and it would take another month to determine that Brian had actually shot himself in the head. He'd also left behind a notebook in which we finally learned he admitted to strangling Gabby Petito. Anna Mariah Wilson, her friends called her Mo, was shot to death at a friend's house in Austin, Texas, May of 2022. She was a professional cyclist and in town for a race that weekend, and she had just returned from an evening swim with a former fling and fellow pro cyclist named Colin Strickland. They were no longer romantically involved at that point. At this point, Colin Strickland was back with another woman named Caitlin Armstrong, a yoga teacher and a realtor, with whom he'd had a relationship before he met Mo Wilson and with whom he'd reconciled after Mo Wilson. A doorbell cam spotted a dark SUV pulling up to Mo's friend's house just one minute after she'd returned from swimming. The vehicle matched Caitlin Armstrong's 2012 Jeep Cherokee right down to the luggage and bike racks. A source told police that when Caitlin Armstrong learned of her on-and-off boyfriend's short-lived romance with Mo Wilson, the victim, well, Caitlin was shaking in anger. And two days after the murder, Caitlin was gone. She was spotted on this surveillance video at the Austin airport where she took a flight to Houston and then took another flight to New York. And days later, she took off from Newark Airport in New Jersey for Costa Rica using someone else's passport. 43 days came and went between the swearing of a first degree murder warrant in Austin and Caitlin Armstrong's arrest at a hostel on a Costa Rican beach. Her hair had been cut and dyed, her nose was bandaged, and her eyes discolored, which she claimed was from a surfboarding accident. Authorities at the time wouldn't confirm she'd had plastic surgery. Reportedly not one, but two passports were found at the hostel where Armstrong was captured. Her own one, and then one belonging to her sister, Christine Armstrong. The same sister that she'd reportedly met at an upstate New York campground a month or so while she was on the run. 
In the summer of 1996, the Olympics came to Atlanta and trouble soon followed. On July 27th, in a downtown park that was then literally a world stage, a massive bomb went off, killing two people and wounding more than 100. Eric Robert Rudolph would not be named as a suspect for two and a half years, by which time he had already struck three more times. In January of 1997, he bombed an abortion clinic in an Atlanta suburb. A month later, he bombed an Atlanta lesbian bar. Rudolph's final attack was January 1998 at another abortion clinic, this one in Birmingham, Alabama. He'd left a box filled with dynamite and nails, and he left it near the entrance. When an off-duty Birmingham police officer picked it up, it exploded, killing him instantly, and a nurse who was nearby lost her eye. This bomb was set off remotely. It was not set off by a timer, and that critical difference would be Eric Rudolph's undoing. While everyone around him was terrified and stunned or running toward the commotion, Eric Rudolph was walking in the other direction and calmly, and a medical student thought it looked weird, and he took note. He called the police, and then separately, that student and a lawyer who happened to overhear him, well, they together decided to follow Rudolph as he drove away in his truck, and they took down the license plate number. Rudolph was then publicly identified as the Birmingham suspect on Valentine's Day. The manhunt was focused on Western North Carolina, where Eric Rudolph grew up. Federal agents and state and local police, professional vigilantes and amateur bounty hunters alike, they all combed those mountains and valleys for weeks and then for months. And the months became years. And Eric Rudolph stayed out of sight until the last day of May in 2003. A 21-year-old rookie with the Murphy, North Carolina Police Department spotted a guy digging around in a dumpster outside of a grocery store. It was Eric Rudolph. Eric tried to run, but eventually he did not put up a fight. And one of the biggest and longest manhunts in U.S. history came to an end. Still to come, catching killers is tough work. They can strike anywhere, anytime, and they can vanish into the night, as you just saw. So when cops in Baton Rouge caught this guy, it was a twofer. Not just because he allegedly killed two women. Find out what else he did two times. Next. Baton Rouge, Louisiana, day after Christmas last year. A woman at a condo complex dies. Everybody thinks it's a suicide. But the darndest thing happened. Um, police were called out to the same condo complex again. Another woman mysteriously died at that same condo complex just a few months later, about seven months later. And turned out it was the, uh, a friend of the first victim, both deaths seem to have an unusual story. And that story has a name, Cedric Lang. Uh, Cedric Lang ended up getting hauled into jail for the death that happened just this summer. Um, and it turns out that Cedric Lang has a long rap sheet of violence towards women. 
numerous protection orders. And now he has a second degree uh, or second murder charge um, uh, in the death that happened last Christmas. So very weird. Two women murdered at the exact same address, seven months apart, still trying to work out the victim's relationship with uh, Cedric Lang. That part we do not know yet. But um, watch the space. We're going to watch the story. Thank you, everyone, for watching tonight. So good to have you here. Have a great weekend. Have a great rest of the Friday night. And stay tuned for Cuomo.